This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Sarah Pinborough discusses her murder mystery, Mayhem. Then PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal tells us which books will be hot at the London Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List powered by Nielsen BookScan. You want to do fiction first? I'll do fiction first. Why not? Um, We have a new number one knocking Danielle Steele out of the top spot. Uh, This is Harlan Coben's Missing You. We gave it a starred review. We say uh, it's a page-turning and stomach-churning standalone thriller uh, from Coben, who's a a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about an NYPD detective and a 19-year-old guy who develops an unexpected bond with her and a mystery involving a dating website. Mm. Uh, and we say Coben orchestrates his story perfectly and uh, has brilliantly used a current trend to create a can't-put-it-down thriller. So that is our new number one. Sounds like it richly deserves it. At number four, we have Raising Steam by Terry Pratchett. Again, nice mm-hmm. to see a genre fiction title on the list. Um, this is the 40th installment of Pratchett's best-selling Discworld fantasy series. I was reading these books when I was a teenager and totally in love with them, and he's still going strong. Um, and as always, Pratchett's unforgettable characters and lively story mirror the best, the worst, and the oddest bits of our own world. And he entertains readers while skewering social and political foibles. Mm. So it, it's really some of the best social satire out there. It just happens to take place on a, a flat planet um, populated by dwarves and trolls and werewolves and uh, police and all sorts of other strange creatures. Isn't that how we get some of the best social commentary, though? When, when Absolutely. You, when you bring, uh, when you set something happening in today's world on another, uh, on another level, on another planet, or on another platform, mm-hmm. just so we could just picks apart the detritus, and then we can just see what's going on for what it is. It lets you get a little bit of distance. Yeah, right. And right. and that sometimes makes it easier for people to see what's in front of them rather than bringing all of their own emotional baggage right. to it. So Pratchett is really the best um, and it's no surprise we also gave that a starred review so Raising Steam is number four on our hardcover fiction list mm. and at number seven we have Joel C. Rosenberg's The Auschwitz Escape uh, this is a, a strong uh, thriller and uh, like Rosenberg's other work it's focused uh, on the Middle East and um, relations between particularly Islam mm-hmm. and uh, and the West and we say that this is also his most deeply moving work to date. He's created believable characters set in a political milieu and also in a religious context uh, and people who act on conviction or exploit religion for selfish or evil ends. So that's a there's some pretty deep moral and ethical stuff in mm-hmm. there. Um, sure. you know, worth, worth reading for people who want to dig deep. Right. 
So that's the Auschwitz escape. Um, then we have The Cairo Affair by Olin Steinhauer. This is at number 16. Uh, I wanted to mention this because we actually had a signature review of it in Publishers Weekly. Um, it was reviewed by author Glenn Kaplan, who is himself a best-selling mm. author. And uh, he says that this is an elegant, elaborate clockwork of mystery and deception. It will draw readers in and keep them on tenterhooks as they try to figure out what is making it all tick. Mm. Um, and it's a very contemporary thriller. It involves the Arab Spring, the you know, recent events in the Middle East, um, and the CIA. And he says Steinhauer is often compared to Jean Le Carré, uh, but the comparison does not adequately serve either author. Um, Le Carré deals with insoluble moral quandaries, while Steinhauer's writing delivers adrenaline. Mm. And Great. finally, I wanted to mention uh, a little bit further down the list at number 20, You Should Have Known by Jean Hanf Karlitz. Um, we gave this a star, so it's an excellent literary mystery that unfolds with authentic detail in rarefied contemporary Manhattan. So uh, up in the, the Upper East Side where people are rich and mm -hmm. life is maybe not so easy. Uh, we say the author deftly places the reader in the shoes of the protagonist by exploring her isolation, Unease and contempt for the rumor mill. Um, and the plot borders on hyperbole, but it doesn't take much away from this intriguing and beautiful book. And uh, people like mysteries or, or otherwise novels set in the city. I mean, it seems to be pretty popular. It's so always popular yeah. forever yeah. and ever and ever. Even as crime plummets in the real New York, somehow right. crime stories set <laughs> right. in, in fictional New York uh, just keep on going. Sure. Yeah. So that's the fiction report for this week. What's in nonfiction? Well, we've got this book has been uh, hovering on the list for 12 weeks now. But uh, last week it was number six. This week it jumped to number one. This is uh, actress Cameron Diaz's The Body Book, The Law of Hunger, The Science of Strength, and Other Ways to Love, uh, other ways to love Your Amazing Body. And uh, like I said, it, it, it jumped from last week number six to number one. Uh, she's been in the press a little bit more. And I think the movie, her forthcoming movie with mm -hmm. uh, Leslie Mann and Kate Upton, the other woman, has been getting a lot of pre-release press. That's not coming out till April, but that's been in the news quite a bit. And uh, various magazines have been picking up on this. So I, I think that's what's contributed last week to to, to this jump. But it's interesting to see uh, a book um, just hover around and all of a sudden go right to number one. And, mm -hmm. and you try and figure out why, you know, the reason why. And it's usually a news story or two or, or, or something else like, like a movie coming out. Um, at number four, Debuting uh, is uh, Adam Braun. The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And uh, Braun was raised in affluent uh, Greenwich, Connecticut by parents who embraced nonconformity. And he uh, graduated college, found a job, six-figure six-figure salary, but realized that it wasn't enough. And he founded this organization called Pencils of Promise, which is a nonprofit organization that partners with local communities in Asia, Latin America, and Africa to build schools, train, you know, train uh, uh, teachers, and offer scholarships and supply educational materials like pencils. So this is a book about that. And I've been seeing more and more uh, memoirs and books written by teachers who are who have found um, non-conventional ways to, to teach all uh, aspects of life, all kids from all aspects of life. And this has been, I think, a building. Uh, it's been a more and more popular genre, these kind of memoirs by teachers. And I think a lot of uh, people, parents, uh, 
teachers, non-teachers are interested in it. And uh, we'll have a couple more in the coming uh, in the coming weeks, a couple more books that we'll be seeing. So that was at number four. Number five by uh, Greg Gutfield. Um, he's the co-host of the uh, hit show, The Five and Red Eye, which is on Fox News Channel, uh, and the author of The Bible of Unspeakable Truths, he's got, which is a New York Times bestseller. He's got this book called Not Cool, The Hipster Elite and Their War on You. So it's a little bit of a backlash to the hipster elite. And this is number five, debuting there. And... Um, Going down a little bit further on the list, we gave this book a star. This is uh, debuting at 18, The Story of the Jews, Finding the Words 1000 B.C. to 1492. Uh, And this is um, Simon Chama. He's a uh, professor at Columbia University. Uh, He's also an NBCC award winner for Rough Crossings. It's a book called uh, The uh, Subtitles of Britain, The Slaves, and the American Revolution. And he's put together 2,500 years in this 512-page volume, which will be a companion to the PBS series of the same name. So we gave it a star review. Hmm. And, um, and that's what we got on the list. All right. Well, that, that sounds particularly interesting. Yeah. Did, did it mention when the PBS series is coming out? Fairly soon, I would imagine. Yes. Uh, I believe uh, this month, which is probably, I, I think it actually even released, which is probably why it's uh, starting, it's uh, uh, doing well on the uh, bestseller list. Got so. it. Yeah. Very cool. Great. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sarah Pinborough will tell us why Victorian England is the perfect setting for a mystery. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sarah Pinborough on the line. Her new novel is Mayhem. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Mayhem is a murder mystery set in Victorian England. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Um, it's, it's based on real-life events. Obviously, it goes down a sort of supernatural angle. But it's based on the real-life Thames Torso murders um, of the 1880s, which were happening at the same time as the Jack the Ripper killings. Um, and bodies were dismembered and um, put in the Thames. Uh, one, of the, one of the torsos was found in the new Scotland Yard building. Um, wow. And it basically follows a medical examiner who gets sort of drawn into uncovering what's going on and who the killer is. So what what draws you to the Victorian era? Um, well, as a rule, I try and avoid anything that involves too much research. <laughs> so this kind of went, I went off plan with this one. Um, but I had read uh, The Terror by Dan Simmons, which is um, an account of two ships that went missing in the Antarctic uh, at the, about the same period. And he veers off into a supernatural explanation. And it really was like, wow. And I thought, I'd like to do something similar. And the Victorian period is great because we all have a kind of ingrained view of it already. We have a, you know, we can see it in our mind's eye. So it doesn't take too much exposition and setting up of description, etc. And you can just go straight into the story. But yeah, that was the Dan Simmons, the terror is who I blame for mayhem. So is there a supernatural element to mayhem? Well, there is. I mean, I kind of think of it as an exploration of madness and whether whether they're mad or whether there is supernatural is up to the reader. But yeah, there is this um, 
uh, I, I mean, I did say to my editor at the time, it's, it's kind of a vampire novel. And she went, it is not a vampire novel. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the word vampire is never used. But there is this kind of ancient evil at work, uh, which is sort of responsible for Jack the Ripper and the Thames Torso murders. So given everything that's been written about Jack the Ripper, how do you tell a refreshing story involving him or the memory of him? Well, I mean, he's the backdrop mm-hmm. to mine. So he's not um, the prime focus of it. And, I mean, I had to involve him because my main character, Dr. Thomas Bond, who was an insomniac uh, police surgeon, he wrote the first ever criminal profile, and that was on Jack the Ripper after going to the Mary Jane Kelly death scene. Um, so I kind of, I didn't want it to be a Jack the Ripper novel, but it was great that those murders happened at the same time because, you know, we do like a bit of Jack the Ripper mm-hmm. <laughs> in a terrible way. I know women died and everything, but <laughs> there is something kind of appealing about Jack the Ripper. So he's, he's kind of the counterbalance to my murderer. And so you said that was so with Jack the Ripper as the background with, so, so kind of like setting the tone of, of the book. So there's, a, there's another, you know, there's, of course, the infamous uh, uh, murder uh, on the rampage. But meanwhile, there is this other element going on. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, for, for a while, the police thought they were both series of murders were being committed by the same person. But the, the way the way they're killed is so different. And, you know, the, one is very clinical and cold and, and Jack the Ripper is very sort of ferocious and frenzied. Um, but they both dismembered women and, and brutalized them, which is, you know, I'm quite a feminist. So that, that doesn't really appeal to me. But at the same time, it was, you know, it's real life crime. And I find that quite fascinating, mm-hmm. you know. So Mayhem is your 12th novel. Do you, do you think there's some common themes throughout your work? Bad things happen. <laughs> uh, I think... Um, and do they happen to good people? <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, I started off as a very straightforward sort of horror novel writer. And now, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm much more cross-genre, you know? I sort of... I, you know, they, they, they tend to have a dark tone to them. Um, and... Something, there's invariably something weird that happens but I mean in Mayhem and Murder that follows there um, the supernatural is, is um, not the driving focus of it you know it, it is happening but it's revealed very slowly whereas in you know when I was writing horror novels you were straight into the supernatural um, so I think I suppose themes in mine are just weird things happen <laughs> I don't really know they're all quite dark though. even my fairy tales are quite dark so I was going to say your short fiction has won British Fantasy Awards. You're mentioning being a horror writer. You also write children's books. How how do you wander back and forth or or around among the genres? Um, I think it's just you write the stories that come to you. You know, so I and I've been very lucky in that my publishers are you know uh, both quite supportive about me flipping around the place and trying different things. You know, I've just um, this year I've got in England Murder comes out, which is up to mayhem and then i've got a ya novel about dying children coming out so they're two very different different kind of things but they i just i I mean i try not to think in terms of genre i think most writers you write a story and then your publishers label it a kind of story in order to sell it through to the bookshops but um i mean sometimes i think i'd do better if i'd pick one thing and just stick to it like write a crime series or something but um 
I just like flipping around, you know. I think it keeps you fresh and and you know, it's just the way my brain works, I mm. suppose. I just I don't think I could imagine in the same way and this is a very personal comment mm-hmm. about me, but in the same way that I've not been able to sustain a relationship for more than three years, I don't think I could stick in one genre for a particularly long time. You know, I like to try different things and play around with stuff and tell different stories. Sure, and and one of the uh, one of the other elements which I know Rose just mentioned is is children's books, oh. uh, and and you write under the name Sarah Silverwood. Um, how did you set on the name Silverwood? Why write under two names? And what is it that you um, uh, explore with children's books? Um, well, it wasn't my idea to write under the two names. It was my then editors, and it was because the. YA fantasy novels were coming out at the same time as the Dogface Gods, in which I had a detective who is a cocaine taker and a womanizer, and you know, and she felt that she didn't want the same people picking up the same books. On reflection, I would rather have done them under my own name, um, and you know, maybe one day they will come out under my own name. Uh, but right, I mean, I loved writing those books; I really did, and they were. Um, I guess there was there's something nice about when I was a kid I read a lot of fantasy far more fantasy than I read as an adult mm-hmm. and I really wanted to write one of those kind of stories that I would have liked reading as a teenager you know mm-hmm. um, and you can there's something great children children can be very wise but they also tend to see things in much more black and white way than adults we learn to live in a grey area because we make so many mistakes and it's easier to sort of put our guilt about the things we do wrong to one side by saying, oh, well, but we all live in a grey area. Whereas children see things in a very black and white way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I worked in a very rough school for quite a while. And these children would come from terribly broken homes. But if they saw two teachers married having an affair, that really shocked them. You know, because they had this very de- definitive idea of what was morally right and morally wrong. Um, and that's quite interesting to play with in books. You know, there's different viewpoints that, that teenagers have on things than adults have. Uh, but I try and make the stories as, as intricate as anything I would write for adults and as dark, to be fair. I think mm. children mm-hmm. like darkness much more than we give them credit for. You know, I was raised reading James Herbert and Stephen King. So, you know, you don't get much darker. Right. Yeah, there have been a lot of complaints I don't know about in the UK press necessarily but certainly in the US about how dark children's fiction is and how dark young adult fiction is and um, I, I feel like it's all of these very kind of self-righteous adults complaining about that and forgetting the kind of stuff that we read I mean the, if, if you if you look at the, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales they yeah. scare the hell out of you yeah oh, I, th- I mean I have no time for it to be honest I think that, you know, I mean, when, when, when I was young, there, were, there was no such thing as YA. So you went from children's books mm-hmm. to reading adults' books. And they could be horror or they could be even things like, I mean, terrible to admit, but Shirley Conran's Lace, which had some quite atrocious sex scenes in it that now you wouldn't be allowed to put in YA. But it didn't damage any of us. We read them, we giggled over them, you know, and we sort of moved on with the story. So I think... You know, that people will let children play computer games, which are really violent, but won't let them read a book with a good story because it has something scary in it. And children need to be scared, mm-hmm. I think. They need to learn that the world is a scary place, you know, which is why I have a problem with sparkly vampires and things, because those tropes were meant to represent the wickedness of the world. And now it's like, 
just have sex with it. It'll be fine. <laughs> that's right, that's right. perhaps not the moral right. lesson we want to impart yeah, yeah, to our yeah. children. I'm missing something here, people. Yeah. What well, is interesting? Would you say about the video games versus reading? And and uh, you, know, you know, reading uh, uh, scary things or for kids to read scary things, but we allow them to play violent video games. Now, you had mentioned before that you were uh, a grade school teacher, I think it was? Uh, high school. A uh, High school. Wow. And um, so how, how is that, how did that influence your writing? I mean, for children's book, but also beyond for adults, if at all. Um, it's hard to say, really, because I mean, I was writing when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. I wrote my le- books for leisure while I was teaching. Um, so I'm not quite sure. How, I mean, it's probably influenced me on sort of subliminal levels. But, I, you know, I think I've made writing the YA books easier. And this book I've just finished, The Death House, that, you know, had teenage characters in it. So I'd sort of think, what would so-and-so do in this? Or, you know, sort of try and imagine some of the kids. But I, I just think we underestimate teenagers a lot. We under, underestimate their... We're either very quick to wipe them all out as a terrible generation, you know, mm-hmm. or we're very quick to try and mollycoddle them. And somewhere in between the two is how they should be treated. They're quite intelligent, you know, young people. And I think they should be allowed to... I mean, video games I've never got into. You know, I was ne- I was never very good at Sonic the Hedgehog. So, you know, I never got, <laughs> I never got into the shooting games. But um, I think it's hard to say. They never, it's, it's hard to be 42 and, and try and imagine what it's like to be a teenager now. You know, mm-hmm. you can only sort of impose your own memories on their existence and they're leading a very very different life than i did in the 80s you know mm-hmm. sure so I'm, I'm not really sure i have an answer to that other than me waffling for hours at you <laughs> no, <it's> great, <laughs> great. <laughs> so you've also written for television and film what was that experience like uh television was quite a baptism of fire yeah. um i mean it was great and financially fantastic but um, it was, you know, it's really high pressured mm-hmm. writing for, especially the show I wrote for was uh, the BBC's highest rated show. Um, and so there's no give in that. You know, it's not like when you write a book and you say, well, I'm going to be two weeks late. Is that all right? <laughs> you, know, you have to have it ready to shoot. Right. And I'm now working on um, first episode of my own TV series with World Productions in England and ITV. Uh, and that again is sort of a round of notes and changes. I mean, I quite like it. It's quite a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. You know, very different to writing a novel where you're on your own. Right. Uh, but it is quite high pressured. I mean, film is easier than TV in that you know you write your draft. There's no, they're not starting shooting on Monday or mm-hmm. whatever. You know. Right. Uh, but selling a script is selling a script is always the hard the hardest part so I try not to write them unless someone paid me to but with film you have to you have to a little bit write it on spec and then take it out and see if you know people will buy it but I I like it because it's good for your dialogue it's good for honing your story and cutting back some of the flab that can go in a book you know I think I think the skills are interchangeable but it's they're very different story storytelling techniques which is why I probably wouldn't as a rule adapt my own books I think you have to tell the story different on film mm-hmm. than you do in a book. I was talking with another author recently who'd done some television writing, and she said that it's really, really good for discipline because for television, you get 24 minutes, and it's not, you know, 23 yeah. minutes, and it's not 25 minutes. You do 24, and you yeah. have to hit that. Exactly. But it's also it's quite tricky because what's my 24 minutes might be 
30 pages what's your 24 minutes might be 26 pages Mm -hmm. you know because I might have a slower pace script or but yeah it is you have to hit that time limit and there is no um you know there's no forgiveness Mm -hmm. on it you know and it's just I just think it's every scene has to tell something uh which is quite a good thing to take into novel writing because we can I mean I've done it myself I'll be writing and I've got nothing in the morning. So I write a thousand words and I think, yeah, that's a bit flabby, <laughs> you know, but I can cut it out in the edit. Whereas, um, you know, in TV writing, it's also precise and film writing is very precise. You know, there's, there's, uh, you spend a lot of time trimming little bits of dialogue that I would never do in a novel. You know, it's just too big. You can't just go back and give everything that level of attention that you do with the script. But that's why they pay you so much. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking with Sarah Pinborough, and you can find her novel Mayhem in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal tells us about what will be hot and what will not at the London Book Fair. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal is here to tell us about the books everyone will be looking for at the London Book Fair. Hi, Rachel. Hi, how are you? Doing well. It's nice to have you here, as always. Thanks for having me. Um, So you previewed a bunch of these in the uh, London briefcase piece in this week's PW. Tell us a little bit more about what the goal is for the London briefcase. Who uses it and what's it for? So the preview is used by people who are both going to the fair and perhaps not attending the fair, um, especially agents and definitely people... uh, at publishing houses and agencies outside the U.S. as well to get a gauge of of what the big agencies will be selling at the fair. So uh, it's the titles that we just focus on the U.S. agencies in the piece, and it's some of the premier titles that they will be selling foreign rights to um, to, to other publishers in other countries. Got it. So this is the sort of thing where maybe these books are out already or they're coming out soon uh, and they, they really want to find international publishers as well? Yeah. It, I mean, it tends to be um, books that have not come out yet. That's the overwhelming majority. Um, it's actually interesting you mentioned that because this year, this is sort of an interesting footnote. Um, Writer's House, one of the agencies, is selling foreign rights to Jonathan Tropper's novel, This Is Where I Leave You, which actually came out in 2009. Hmm. Um, and they've decided to do that in part because a movie is coming out in Uh. the fall, uh, which stars Jason Bateman and Tina Fey and Jane Fonda, I believe, among others. And Tropper wrote the adaptation to the movie, and they're hoping to piggyback on that and sell uh, foreign rights to the book in territories where it has not already been bought. It it has been... um, translated and published in a number of other countries, but I, I think there are still, still some countries that they're going to go after. So you don't see that very often, but um, I mean, that's a case that sort of goes against the uh, the stream, goes against the standard, I'd say. So what is the right scene like at this one uh, versus the, all three of the uh, the big book events? 
uh, so the, the three being, I guess you're talking about the Frankfurt Book yeah. Fair, the London Book Fair, and the Bologna Book Fair? Yes, and then our own book fair here. Oh, Book yeah. Expo. Book Expo, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think of, I guess, the three big international rights fairs as sort of separate from um, Book Expo, but you do make a good point insofar as um, Book Expo certainly does have a rights area, and, you know, I think... Reed has uh, Reed, which runs Book Expo, has been trying to play up the right center, and I do think in the last year or so, you know, some more um, agents from other countries are are looking at Book Expo as a chance to to sell foreign rights as they sort of come through New York and maybe take meetings um, mm. with publishers who are based in New York. Um, right. So, but with that being said about Book Expo, I think that the three big international rights fairs are really the Frankfurt Book Fair, the London Book Fair, and, and Bologna. Bologna uh, just closed, I think, today, or just happened, and that fair really focuses on children's books. Um, and then London and Frankfurt are the other two ba- two big fairs. Frankfurt being, I'd say, the biggest. Um, mm-hmm. It happens in the fall, and just in terms of space, um, actual floor space it's the largest of the fairs and i think it sort of kicks off the the season if you will being in the fall and so there's always a lot of activity and it's incredibly busy um london i think is a fair that is also really busy but it's actually smaller um i think people always say they enjoy going to london more than frankfurt so it has that element um so i think people tend to sort of enjoy the fair more um and you know, you can make the argument that Frankfurt is where the bigger deals happen. I don't know. It's sort of, it's. I think it's hard to make that case. Big deals happen in both places. And I think, um, you know, when people have a big book that they're looking to sell, they look at each of these fairs as a place to really sort of bring it out and announce it and get a whole lot of attention for it and hopefully get a lot of deals. So when people, you know, when agents are, have something that they think is going to be really important really big um that has a chance to get out there in a big way they definitely try to time the release of it to uh to these book fairs Hmm. so tell us a little bit about some of the big titles and the big agencies that are going to be at london i think we have about 18 agencies in our briefcase and we you know we do a mix of sort of i guess some of the biggest most notable agencies in the u.s um Certainly not every agency that's there. Um, and, you know, and it's worth noting that a lot of smaller um, agents will, you know, send, will have other agencies handle their foreign rights. So that's happening. But um, I'd say, you know, we focus on some of the biggest players in the U.S. And then in terms of some of the big books, um, you know, in our briefcase, a, a bunch of these titles have already been sort of announced already. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the some of the marquee names, I guess, you're seeing um, right before we did our preview. Keith Richards's picture book was announced, um, so that's obviously a very big title, you know, because of his name. Um, another book that you know I think will sell quickly. Um, and has already sold in a bunch of places. Anne Rice has a new book featuring Lestat, and that, um, I believe, the last book that featured that character was in 1989? Yeah, it's been a really yeah. long time. I, don't don't quote me on that year, but uh, <laughs> right, right. I think it was... Yes, no, it's, it's been quite some it's time. It's been a while. Um, so I think that's a pretty big book. Um, Larry Summers has his first book, which is going to be shopped at the fair, and that's going to be on the economy. Um, so another big name there. 
Um, an interesting title from our briefcase is a book called How to Catch a Russian Spy, which Foundry Literary Media is selling rights to. That book was acquired by Scribner in the U.S., mm. and um, the author of it is actually anonymous right now, and it's somebody who... Uh, let me just get this right. He was, I think the idea is he was a, um, an average guy who became a spy during the Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the agency said the author will be revealed at some point you know, while he's writing the book. And actually 20th Century Fox optioned the novel uh, right after Scribner bought it for seven figures. So that's an... Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting wow. book. Um, and I think... Um, you know, it'll get more attention as uh, sort of becomes closer to potential publication mm-hmm. date. I mean, that, that's one thing to remember about the um, the books that are in the preview. Some, you know, might not be so far off from publication, but we have titles in here that are publishing in 2015, 2016, sometimes even 2017. Hmm. So some of these projects are, you know, way in the future. And um, so we're talking about them really early. Others are, you know, more sort of on the horizon. Um Another interesting thing to note, I think, this year, uh, we've seen last year and the year before, you know, a lot more agencies selling foreign rights to um, books that were originally self-published or um, are still self-published, and that continues this year. I think uh, one of the interesting things is that some of these books, um, as opposed to being self-published titles that are now necessarily at a traditional house, some of them are still um, independently published, and I think one thing you're seeing is that, um, you know, one market that remains totally unavailable to indie authors really is the foreign market. Right. Um, so there's just no way around the fact that without an agent, um, you just can't access uh, foreign publishers and you can't sell the rights to your book mm. on your own. So um, I think more and more a lot of indie authors who are finding success on their own, whether or not they're, you know, they land a traditional deal or are seeking a traditional deal, um, you know, they're getting hooked up with an agent because there really is a big market for, for foreign rights. And, um, you know, it's certainly a, a great way for an author to make right. money um, outside of the U.S. market, you know, to get a bigger readership and, you know, again, to make money selling foreign rights. So that's an interesting thing, I think, to see in this year's briefcase that, some of these self-published titles that agents are selling might not necessarily be traditionally published. Even. Mm-hmm. And so I did want to ask, you go to all these shows. You've been to, you pretty much go to all of them except for uh, Bologna. Correct. Um, what is the highlight of this one for you or for, for those attending? Like, what, is, what stands out about London? Uh, for me, yeah, I love the city. Um, I love going to London, so I think that's always fun. Um, and I do think... I don't know. The fairs are always incredibly busy because so many deals are happening. So mm. it's it's in, it's just hard and exciting to sort of stay up on everything that's going down. But um, yeah, I think it it tends to be a little less hectic than Frankfurt. Um, like I said, because it's later in the season and because I think um, I think people look at it as a little bit more social and a little less work, not necessarily. But um, but yeah, the highlight is really London. It's just. Uh, it's. I have to say, I prefer it to Frankfurt, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a great city to, to be able to visit and, and get to go out in. Wow, sounds great. So we hope to hear uh, about it when you come back. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Okay. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site out every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 